Well, if you would open your Bibles, please, to Psalm 34. Psalm 34, and our text for this evening will be verses 7 through 14. Psalm 34, verses 7 through 14. It is a blessing and a privilege to be back with you again and um, to worship with you, to draw near to our God together, to know that even as we sing to him, that he is here loving us, his people, and seeking after those who are lost, that he might save them, and uh, drawing people to his son. So since this text was already read in your hearing, um, I'd just like to pray for God's blessing upon it before we begin. So let's pray. Lord, we cannot see you, but you always see us. And even when we don't feel your presence, you are always near. And Lord, if that's true, how much more is it the case that where, as you've promised, when two or three are gathered in your name, there you, Lord Jesus, are present among them. And so we pray that as we open up the scriptures tonight, that even though there is a frail and foolish man standing here to preach, that there would be, in a real sense, you as the preacher, and that you would speak through your word, for these are your words, Lord God, that, that your spirit inspired so long ago. And since they're your words and you are here, we pray that you would take these words that you would speak them not just to our ears but to our hearts and that you would stir us so that if there's any amongst us or who will hear this message who do not have the fear of God in them, that you would put the fear of you in them so that they would never turn away from you. And Lord, for those in whom the spirit of the fear of the Lord dwells, we pray that you would cause them to flourish in the fear that you would unite our hearts to fear your name. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this evening I would like to speak to you about the fear of the Lord. Now I understand that even to say those words together for many people seems to be a, a jarring inconsistency. That there would be people who would say, we shouldn't even talk about fearing God anymore. It's just not right to do that. Uh, because God is good, and he's love, and so we, we should not fear him. Or perhaps, if, if they wouldn't be so bold as to say that, they would say, well, yes, the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, but, but it just really means respect, you know, we should just show respect to God and have a certain sense of reverence for him. But dear friends, the Bible uses the word fear. In fact, it talks about trembling in God's presence. And so we, we cannot simply escape from the fear of God and say that's some old-fashioned or maybe even Old Testament idea. Uh, the New Testament calls us to fear God. Christ himself calls us to fear God. But why? Why should we fear God? 
Well, just as some people would say we shouldn't fear God because he is so good, other people would say, well, we should fear God because he is so great. And there is truth to that, isn't there? There is truth to that. It, it says in Psalm 96, 4, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. And we could take this time tonight and talk about how the greatness of God should inspire fear in our hearts and, and how his, his attributes, like his, his infinite power, his omnipotence, and his glory and his majesty, his justice against sin, and all those sorts of things should move us to fear the Lord. And that would all be true. But tonight, I'm going to speak to you a slightly different message than that. Not to deny that that's true, but the burden of the text that we have before us in Psalm 34, 7 and onwards, is yes, fear the Lord, but the reason that it gives is not because God is great. Instead, it says, fear the Lord because he is good. Now, you might think, um, time out, preacher. That doesn't make any sense. You don't fear someone because they're good, but this is, in fact, what this scripture says to us. And it's my hope that the Holy Spirit would open up this text to us tonight in a way that you would be able to see that God is so infinitely, unspeakably good that it calls us, indeed it almost compels us in a good and sweet sense to fear him. And to fear him is the sweetest thing on earth. So let's look at the text together. Now, as we're not going to look at the first part of this text, except just to briefly summarize it, to say that in verses 1 through 6, um, the psalmist is praising God. He, he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. He's resolved to constantly be praising God. And he explains in verses 4 through 6 that the reason he's doing that is because he's experienced God's salvation. Isn't that a, a big reason why we praise God? A reason why we sing to him if we're his children? Because we've experienced his salvation. We've called upon the Lord and he's heard our prayers and saved us from our sins and ultimately will save us from all evil. Now, I'm not going to comment further on that, but that's important to, to establish the frame of what we're talking about here. Because whatever we have to say about the fear of God, it is the kind of fear that moves people to praise and worship God. And it is the kind of fear that people experience when they've been saved by his grace. And that should already signal for us that this is a very different fear than most people have in mind when they talk about the fear of the Lord. Now, as we look at the actual text that we're going to be opening up this evening, you can see that it breaks into two parts. Verses 7 to 10 are a series of promises. And then in verses 11 to 14, we have a series of practical instructions. 
So those are the two main headings that I'll be bringing to you. And by the way, uh, this won't really affect the uh, exposition of the word, but it might be interesting to know that this in Hebrew is an acrostic poem, which means um, each verse begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet with a little bit of variation. So this is a highly crafted piece of poetry. Someone has spent a lot of time thinking about exactly what he wants to say. And of course, he was inspired by the Spirit of God. And so let's listen carefully to what God is saying to us here. First of all, we have a set of promises to people who fear God. And promises, my friends, are like checks that God writes out to us that we can take to the bank. So let's find out what these promises are. First of all, we find the promise that he will stay with them to rescue them. Look at verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Now, the, the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, that, that's kind of a mysterious figure in the Old Testament. Of course, you probably know what the Bible means ordinarily when it talks about angels. There are created spirits who ordinarily reside in heaven in the glorious presence of God, but are sent to earth to perform missions by him. Uh, they have names like Michael and Gabriel. But you know, oftentimes in the Old Testament, when it uses this title, the angel of the Lord... When you read it in context, you discover, wait a minute, this person that we're dealing with is not any created spirit. This is the Lord himself. Whether you're talking about Hagar and her encounter with the angel of the Lord in, in Genesis 16, or Moses on Mount Sinai, the, the Bible tells us that the person in the burning bush is the angel of the Lord in Exodus 3. But you keep reading and you're like, wait a minute, he's talking as if he's God himself. And so mysteriously, in the Bible, oftentimes, and perhaps here as well, the angel of the Lord is God himself. But you might be thinking, but that doesn't make any sense. Because as you may know, the word angel means a messenger, one who is sent by someone else. And the very title, angel of the Lord, means someone sent by the Lord. And so how can the Lord be sent by the Lord? But you know the answer to that from the New Testament, don't you? Because the Father has sent his Son into the world. And the Father is God and the Son is God. And so many people believe that the angel of the Lord in the, New, or in the Old Testament is God the Son before he took on human flesh. And that actually makes a lot of sense in this text because you'll notice that it says the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Now, the imagery here is like an army that sets up its camp around a strategic location in order to protect it. Now, it would be difficult for a single angel to set up a camp around somebody, wouldn't it? But that wouldn't be a problem for God, and this is really quite a beautiful image. In fact, there might be a little bit of a play on words here because these same words about encamps around those who fear him appear in the book of Numbers about the Levites. 
You remember the Levites, the ones who were charged to take care of the tabernacle? In Numbers 1, verse 53, it says, The Levites shall camp around, the same words, the tabernacle of the testimony. And then later in the verse, it says, And the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. And so, it's almost like God is saying, Do you remember how the Levites camped around my holy places to to fight to protect them against anything that would desecrate them? That's what I'll do for you, my people. I I will be like a wall around you. I will be like an army around you to protect you against anything that would do you harm. My friends, isn't that reassuring? Don't we live in frightening times? Times where there's an an increase of violence in our land. Times when we feel like the world, it, it seems like it's out of control, even though we know as Christians that God still has it under control. And we hear frightening reports from overseas about wars and rumors of war. We can become frightened by these things. These sorts of things, these constant things coming at us from the news or maybe even our own personal lives or something happens in our community, we begin to feel endangered. But wouldn't it be assuring to be able to look around you and see this army of powerful soldiers who are just there to keep you safe? Well, you know, that that actually happened to Elijah. You know the the account, or Elisha, excuse me, in 2 Kings chapter 6, about how he and his servant got up one day, and they discovered that the Syrian army had besieged their city. And the servant was saying, what are we going to do? And Elisha prayed, Lord, open his eyes. And the Lord granted that servant temporarily the ability to see into the spirit world. And you know what he saw? Chariots of fire all around them. The forces of heaven there to protect them. My friends, if you have the angel of the Lord surrounding you, camped around you like an army, it does not matter what enemies you might face. It does not matter what dangerous or violent people you might have to deal with. You are safe. And there is nothing that God will allow to touch you except what he has planned for your good. But for whom does he do this? He doesn't do this for everyone, does he? What people does he give this precious promise to? It says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. Isn't that a paradox? The safest people in the world are the people who fear. But it's not just that they fear, it's whom they fear. They fear God, and God is with them. Doesn't that make you want to fear the Lord? If you, to have that promise, to be able to say, that's me, that's me in verse 7. The angel of the Lord is encamped around me, and I'm safe. But not only that, he gives them a promise that he will satisfy them with his goodness. He will satisfy them with his goodness. Look at verse 8. 
Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Taste. Taste. That's, that's, an, that's an eating word, isn't it? That's a sense word. That's an experience word. That's a word that's, hey, come sit at the table. You've got to try this. This is so good. This is so delicious. Come. There's plenty to eat here. Come and join us. Sit at the table and eat at this rich banquet. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And this honors the Lord. This honors the Lord. You know, sometimes if somebody invites you to come and eat, you're like, oh, no, no, I don't want to be of any trouble to you. And uh, we've got something of our own to eat. And we've got other plans or something like that. But, But when God invites us to taste of his banquet, this is for his glory. This is for his glory. Because in the ancient world, one of the ways that rich and powerful men showed forth their magnificent wealth and won the praises of people was they would host tremendous banquets. Now you can see that, for example, in the first chapter of Esther, right? Ahasuerus, the great emperor of the, the vast Persian Empire, throws this incredible banquet, and the decorations are just spectacular, and the, the food is out of this world, and the wine is flowing. And what's the point of all this? Well, the point of that sort of thing is people would go to those banquets, and then they would go away, and they would talk about it for years. Do you have any idea what what a great king he is? You couldn't believe the things that we saw, the hospitality that he showed. And so when God says, taste and see that the Lord is good, he's saying, come to my banquet. This is how you honor me. And you discover that with God there is unceasing satisfaction. It says in Psalm 36, verses 7 and 8. You can just flip over there. Psalm 36, just two chapters over in the Psalms, verses 7 and 8. How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. And here it is. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. With God, there is a limitless banquet of joy and satisfaction, and God says, come and eat. Come and eat. And did you notice that it doesn't say, oh, taste and see that the Lord has a lot of good stuff. It doesn't say, taste and see that the Lord will do you good. This isn't talking exactly about what God has or what he does. What's it talking about? Who he is. Taste and see that the Lord is good. In other words, dear friends, in a spiritual sense, God is the bread and the wine at this feast. 
God is offering himself to us. God is saying, I want you to come and to know how incredibly rich I am, not so much in what I own. Yes, I own the whole universe, but frankly, that's really quite a small thing to me. I want you to know the incredible banquet of rich joys and pleasures exists within my own divine being. I want you to have me and to know how good I am. And again, we have to ask, to whom does he offer this? Who is this promised to? Well, it says in the second half of verse 8, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. This blessedness, this enjoyment of God's favor and mercy and goodness and grace belongs to those who run to God as their hiding place. Those who trust him to deliver them from sin and Satan and death and all evil. And you know, just as we saw that the angel of the Lord in many ways in its Old Testament context points us to God the Son, Jesus Christ, these words also echo with something else in the Psalms that points us to Jesus Christ. Because this is almost exactly the same thing, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him, as it says earlier in Psalm 2. Psalm 2, in the very end of the Psalm, in verse 12 says this, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Same words, just slightly different form. And who's the him in verse 12 of Psalm 2? It's the son of God. It says so just earlier in that same verse. And all of Psalm 2 is talking about Christ, the anointed of God. It's a prophecy of how God would send his eternally begotten son into the world to be the savior and king of his people. And so when it says here, taste and see that the Lord is good, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, my friends, this is an invitation to come and enjoy the goodness of God by coming to his son, Christ, the second person of the Trinity, who came to be the mediator between God and man, who came so that you could know God and glorify him and enjoy him forever. And so this is the remarkable promise, but you have to make it your own. When it says taste and see This is a a call for you to, to come, to come to the Lord, to come to Christ, to trust in him. Charles Spurgeon said, "There, there there is a banquet, but the sweetness will be all unknown to you, except you make the blessings of grace your own by a living, inward, vital participation in them. A living inward, vital participation in them. Taste. You have to take this into the mouth of your soul, so to speak. You need to receive this Christ as the bread of life, 
and accept his spirit as the living water so that just as your food enters into you and becomes a part of who you are, the Lord must be received by you and you must have a living, vital, personal relationship with him and he will satisfy your soul. Now, we have seen how, in many ways, this psalm points us to God the Son. But as we move on and we look at the next two promises, in many ways, they're going to point us especially to God the Father. The next promise is in verse 9, and it's the promise that he will not only surround them and protect them and satisfy them, but also he will meet all of their needs. Verse 9 says, O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. They have no lack. In other words, all of their needs will be provided for. Now, I don't know about you, but it has been somewhat alarming to me as I watch the prices rise. You know, to see the gas prices leap upward the way that they have, and to know that gas prices are connected to food prices, and I have a family to feed, and as prices are going up, for some reason my paycheck is not going up to match them. And so you're looking at the budget, and you start to think, "How, how is this going to work? And I'm sure many of you have felt the same way. When, when difficult economic times come, we can start to worry and fret, and that fretting can turn into fear, and that fear can lead us into places in our minds that, that can be very dark places. But isn't this a, a fatherly word to us? Isn't this a, is it just a, the, the word of the Heavenly Father saying, those who fear him have no Lack. Isn't that what a father says to his kids? Say, you know what, kids? Don't worry about this. You just do your chores, do your school. Daddy will provide for you. And when we say this to our kids, we're just limited men, right? But when God says to this, he says it as the infinite, unlimited father He says, you don't have to get all churned up inside about how you're going to provide for yourself if you are one of those who fear me, because those who fear me have no lack. This is the kind of thing Jesus was talking about in Matthew 6, verses 31 to 33, when he said, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So yes, be faithful stewards of your finances and your possessions. Be wise. Work hard at your jobs. These are the ways that God provides for you. But don't be anxious. Don't be afraid. Why? Because you fear him. And you fear a good father. 
Here again, we we see the paradox of the fear of the Lord, don't we? This is a fearless fear. It is a fear that if you fear God, you need not be afraid of anything else. And the more you fear him, the less you will fear anything else. This is a fear that is the opposite of the thing that we typically think of as fear. Because when we fear the things of earth, we typically run away from them, right? Got to stay away from him. He's dangerous. But when you fear the Lord, according to this text, you run to him. You take refuge in him, as the previous verses said. And really, it just makes sense. I mean... How much sense does it make to try and run away from God? Those who fear the Lord and who know that he is great and glorious, that he's already present in all places, there's nowhere to run from him. There's only one way to run. That's to run to him. To run to him. To be reconciled to him. To have peace with him through Jesus Christ. To hide in him and to keep hiding in him day after day after day. You know, the kind of fear that we have of things in this world breeds great resentment. When you're afraid of someone, generally it means that you hate that person and you just, you want to get away from them, you want to get rid of them if you possibly could. You could do so in a lawful manner. But this isn't that kind of slavish fear. This is a kind of fear that is joined not with hatred, but with love. Because you know that this God is so good that those who taste and see who he is rejoice in his goodness. And so, yes, you fear God. You fear God because he is great and also because he is infinitely good. But for those same reasons, you love him. And so you fear, to, you fear his greatness with joy and you love him with trembling. Again, that's what it says in Psalm 2. It says, rejoice with trembling. And you say, how do you fit those things together? The way that you fit them together is by knowing God. See, that's, it doesn't work that way with other people and things. But when it's God, well, as, as John Bunyan once said about Jesus Christ, he is such a king that to know him is to love him and fear him. That's the greatness of our God. And not only does he provide for us as a good father, but he also promises that he will give them every good thing. He will give them every good thing. Notice it says in verse 10, The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. I hear the roaring of engines out there. I felt like I was in the Indy 500 when I was driving over here. I don't know if there's some kind of automotive event happening in town, but there are all these hot sports cars out there, and there's a jockeying for position and stuff like that. And here I am putzing along in my Chevy. And, um, and you know what, what an image that is today of, of the way that we are told that we ought to live. You know, we should be go-getters. We should be aggressive. We should be jockeying for position so that we can be first at the next stoplight. You know, we should be 
competing in everything that we do so as to beat the other guy and get what he's got. And the world tells us that that's what we deserve. And it's interesting that the image here in verse 10 is of young lions, because that's the way young lions are. They're strong, aggressive predators, and they are killers. And so they are out to kill, to satisfy their ravenous hunger. And yet, if you study wildlife and and that sort of thing, you, you understand that even these powerful lions, the king of the beasts, can go through seasons of great need and hunger and even starvation. Because there are all these other animals out there that are competing for the same thing. And in the same way, if if we live to just look out for number one, to be out there trying to aggressively pursue and even act perhaps as predators, to take hold of other people and what they have, to use them for ourselves and then to move on, which is the way of this world, we will often find ourselves to be in great need because we'll find that everybody else in the world is trying to do the same thing to us. It's a dog-eat-dog world. But the scriptures give us another way. It says even though the strong and aggressive sometimes lack what they need, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. This is a fullness of provision. He will not only meet all their needs, but he will give them every good thing. Now, again, this is a fatherly image. And on the one hand, it shows us the the great generosity of God's fatherly heart. Jesus taught us in Matthew 7 that if you, though you are evil... Uh, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give to those who ask him? God is not a stingy God. He loves to give what is good. But here's the thing that we need to understand. A good father doesn't give his kids everything that they think is good. A good father gives to them what he knows is good for them. Now, and oftentimes a father is preparing his children. He's preparing them for the future when they will be adults. He is preparing them for the role that they will play when they grow up. And he may subject them to difficult and demanding tasks. He might even make them do schoolwork. And schoolwork can be a real drag sometimes. But he does it because he is insistent that they will lack no good thing. And they need to do schoolwork because very soon they will be men and women standing on their own. And our Heavenly Father is the same. He promises us that he will withhold no good thing. But my friends, we need to understand that he knows what is good and what is not good, and we don't. And the psalmist recognizes this in Psalm 119, in verse 71. Psalm 119, in verse 71, he says, It is good for me 
that I was afflicted. (laughs) Put that together. It was good for me that it was bad. Is that nonsense? No, because listen to what he says next. It is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. In other words, our Heavenly Father has higher goals for us than for us simply to be prosperous and fully healthy and have total peace in our families and workplace. He is preparing His children for glory. And to do that, He must make them holy. And that is hard. But the promise of this text is a promise that you can bank on, my friends, that if you seek the Lord, if you are one who belongs to him, who fears his holy name, who's trusted in his son, if there's anything that is actually good for you, your father will see to it that you have it. And if you don't have it, you better believe that to have it, at least right now, would not be good for you. Because he is a good father. What extraordinary promises God gives. Hey, I mean, it's just incredible, this, this set of promises. See, do, you, do you realize that God could do all these things and never tell us the promises? He could just act this way without announcing to us that this is what he's going to do. But he tells us the promises because he wants us to know these things and he's motivating us to fear him. He wants us to have the sense of, wow, all this and all I have to do is fear him and to gladly, joyfully pursue the fear of God. But you might say, but but how do we do that? How do we fear the Lord? It should be apparent by now that the fear of, the God, of God is, is not the same thing that we often think of in terms of the word fear. The fear of God is a, a wondrous mystery. So how do we fear the Lord? How, practically speaking, can we grow in that? What does it mean? Well, thankfully, the psalmist tells us. Because after giving us all these promises to those who fear the Lord, he gives practical instructions in the next few verses. So let's look at those by way of practical application. Practical instructions for how to fear God. Number one, listen. Listen to God's wisdom as a teachable son. Verse 11 says, Come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Come, he says. Come. You ever, you ever done that with your kids? They're all busy doing this, that, or the other thing, and there's something that you want to talk to them about. Maybe you're going to have your family devotions, or maybe there's something you want to show them. And so, and you don't want to just kind of walk past them while they're all busy in their books or their screen or something like that, because you know they're only listening to you with half of one ear. And so you say, Come, come on, kids, come, come over here, give me your full attention. And so, this is what he's saying. Give God's word your full attention. 
pay attention and listen. Come and listen. Oh, we're so bad at listening. <coughs> we're so bad at listening. We're, we're much better at, at telling God what we think his word says <laughs> instead of listening to what it actually says. We're so, we're so bad at, at giving attention to the specific words and their meanings and meditating on things. But, but this is what God calls us to do. And when it says, come, O children, literally, uh, the Hebrew text says, sons. Come, sons. Why would I bring that up? Well, it's for this reason. Because this is language that you might recognize as echoing other parts of the Bible. Parts of the Bible where we frequently read the writer saying, Listen to me, my son. Or, Hear, O sons, a father's instruction. Or, Now, O sons, listen to me. This is Proverbs 4.1, Proverbs 8.32, Proverbs 1.8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. The first step of the fear of the Lord is to have a humble, childlike openness to be taught God's wisdom. God's wisdom. To stop being wise in our own eyes. To stop saying, you know, the world would just be so much better if everybody would just listen to me. Right? I'd fix all the political problems and the economic problems and the church problems and the family problems if just people would listen to me. Listen, the reason why we have these problems is because of the way that we think. We need to be taught. We all need to be taught. Just because I'm up here on a platform, I'm not excluding myself. I need to listen. We need to be teachable because that is the way of wisdom. It appears over and over again in the Proverbs. And it it starts with humility, with with a humility that that is willing to renounce our pride and and say, okay, this person is bringing something to me from the wisdom of God's word. I need to hear what he has to say. I, I I need to listen to what my wife is saying to me right now because she is sharing something that she has gained from meditating on God's word. I need, to have, I need to listen to this brother in Christ, even though, okay, he's younger than I am, um, or, or whatever it might be. You know, we have a hundred reasons to think that we don't need to listen to each other. Sometimes it's because he's older than I am. But it's that humility, that teachableness, that thought of, okay, you know what? Maybe God has given you some wisdom that I don't have yet. And I need to get it. It's that kind of humility and that openness, especially to hear the wisdom that comes from the word of God. 
That's really the, the first step in the fear of the Lord. It's, it's that, that teachableness. In fact, it's not just being willing to listen. It's being eager to listen. It's wanting to learn. It's coming to Sunday school class saying, God, please help me. I'm such a foolish person. I need more wisdom from your word. Use a Sunday school teacher to give me more wisdom. And so on and so forth. And you know, my friends, this is just as we saw that the, the first part, verses um, 7 and 8, pointed us to God the Son as the angel of the Lord and the one in whom we take refuge. And verses 9 and 10 pointed us towards God the Father. These verses are practical applications. This is what God the Holy Spirit produces in people's lives. If, if you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, he is the spirit of the fear of the Lord, Isaiah 11 says. And one of his first works in your life is to create a humility so that you learn to listen. But it not only involves a mindset of listening, but it also involves the, the affections and the desires of your heart. And, and taking those desires and pointing them towards God, which is what the next verse says. It says in uh, verse 12, What man is there who desires life and loves many days, that he may see good? Now, you might say to yourself, isn't that kind of a dumb question? I mean, not to be irreverent, this is the Bible and everything. But what man is there who desires life and loves many days to see good? Who doesn't that apply to, right? Isn't that everybody in their right mind? They want a good life. They want good things. But my friend, that's the point. The point is, if you want good things... You need to learn the fear of God because good things come from God. Good things come from God. You need to come to see God as the source of all good. Imagine that you lived in a very small town and... Uh, there's one grocery store there. That's it. That's your one-stop shopping because that's the only store in town. I lived in places like that. Um, and so, so when you need something, you know where you need to go. That's your only option. Well, we don't live in that, that kind of a setting, and we've got so many different options and so many different places and so many different ways to get what we want, we forget something. In reality, everything that you need and everything that you want, you have to go to one source to get it. And it's not Walmart. It's God. It's God. You can't buy shampoo without God giving it to you. You can't buy hamburger to cook. You can't put gas in your car 
You can't even have the strength to get out of your bed and go to your job in the morning unless God gives it to you. This is the teaching of the Bible. It says in Acts 17, 24, and 25, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And so if you're going to fear God, it's got to begin with recognizing that he is your supplier of everything that you have or need or want. Shouldn't that make you fear him? Because that means that he chooses whether you get it or you don't. It's just unbelievable to me sometimes how arrogant we can be. Here God is constantly supplying the world with all of its food, all of its clothing, all of its money, all of its strength, all of its ability. And people just continue to curse God and ignore him. And he just keeps giving and giving and giving. And they're utterly blind to the fact that in a manner of speaking, they're biting the hand that feeds them. You ever heard that expression? You know, if your dog bit your hand every time you went to put food in its bowl, you know, Rover's not going to be around very long, I'm afraid. And yet people are such fools. They constantly dishonor and disrespect and disobey the God who is holding up their very life. And all he has to say is, enough. And they drop into the pit of hell. Why does he do that? Why does he keep giving and giving and giving? My friends, taste and see that the Lord is good. He's good. He's a God of unspeakable generosity. But he is also a God of righteousness and justice because he is good. And when this text says to us, What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? It's saying to us, if you want to continue to enjoy God's bounty and goodness forever, you need to fear him. In fact, at the very beginning of fearing him is taking all of those desires for goodness, for happiness, for things to go well in your life, for eternal life, for forgiveness of your sins, for all of that, and to point those desires straight at God. And to see that it's from his hand that he blesses you with those things. That will teach you the fear of God. John Calvin said, until men recognize that they owe everything to God, that they are nourished by his fatherly care, that he is the author of their every good, that they should seek nothing beyond him, they they will never yield him willing service. You will only serve God voluntarily and joyfully when you come to realize that every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father above. You might be saying, okay, well, that's, those are helpful, practical instructions. They, they show me how I should be thinking and how to direct the desires of my heart. But what about something even more practical about what we do and how we act? Well, 
Here's another thing that it gives to us. Verse 13. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Okay, so you want to learn the fear of God? You want a practical takeaway about how to fear God and something that you can put into practice even this very week? I give it to you in three words. Watch your mouth. The fear of God means being conscious of what you are saying and controlling what you are saying so that you don't say anything that is evil, but only that which is good. Psalm 141 verse 3 says, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. We used to tell our kids that they should imagine that there's a little soldier who's sitting on their shoulder, and he's got his little gun, and he's watching your mouth. And he's, he's got his bullseye there so that if anything's about to come out of that mouth that's going to be wrong, he shoots it dead before it can get out. We need to think before we speak. Because with many words comes much transgression. And my friends, this is a very serious matter. Listen to what James says in James 1.26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. But, but wait, wait a minute, James. I, I, I can talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, and, and I, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. James says, if you do not bridle your tongue, your religion is worthless. This is serious business. The fear of the Lord will lead us to be careful about what we say. The Bible says the power of life and death is in the tongue. And folks, hasn't it been the case that that you have been interacting with somebody and maybe emotions got a little bit high and before you knew it, you opened your mouth and a cruise missile came out? And just blew that person up. And I tell you the truth. You can say you're sorry. And you can, be, you can mean it. And you can make amends. And perhaps reconcile again. But you can never undo the damage that that word caused. And, and the sad thing is that many of us can remember things that were said to us decades ago. Words are powerful. Jesus says in Matthew 12 that God will judge us on judgment day by every idle word. So the fear of God means watching your mouth, guarding your speech. But not just your speech. The last instruction that we're given amongst these practical directions is this. Turn from sin to righteousness and peace. Turn from sin to righteousness and peace. Turn away from evil, verse 14 says, and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. And this is a major 
theme in the Bible about fearing God. For example, in Job 28, 28, it says, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. If you fear God, then when you look upon the possibility of taking a certain action and you realize that God hates that, the fear of the Lord will cause you to say, no way, I don't even want to go close to doing that. And if you have done it and you realize it, the fear of the Lord will cause you to repent of that sin and turn back to God. Not because he's some big meanie, but because he's good and he loves what is good and he hates what is evil. And if you will turn back to him through the blood of Jesus, he'll forgive you of that sin and he'll lead you in right paths. Again, this isn't some kind of legalism. This is what the Holy Spirit works in people's lives when they come to the Father through the Son and God plants the fear of God in their hearts. They become a people who more and more turn away from evil. They don't want anything to do with what the Ten Commandments forbid. They turn away from evil. And not just that, they do good. They do good. That's that's crucial as well. It's crucial as well. Spurgeon said, be practical, active, energetic, persevering in good. Thomas Watson warns us that there are people whose religion is all negative. I don't do this, and I don't do that, and I don't do that, and I don't do that. Well, okay, that's fine, but what do you do? Because Jesus calls us to be active doers of good. And you say, that's legalism. No, it's not. It's bearing the image of God. Because God is good. Remember? Fear the Lord because he is good. God is a God who is constantly doing good to others. And he has given you the privilege as his image bearer with the gifts that you have to do good to others as well. To be faithful in your vocation, whatever it might be. To be faithful in your relationships as a member of a family, as a son, a daughter, a student, a father, a mother, a grandmother, a grandfather, whatever it might be. To do good because God is good and because God is great. And notice this this little thing at the very end, seek peace and pursue it. God is a God of peace. And peace is not just the absence of open conflict. There is such a thing as the peace of the graveyard. There's no conflict because everybody's dead. True peace is not a dead thing. It is a living and vital and dynamic thing. It's harmony. It's harmony. It's, it's like when, when singers get together 
And, and they sing, and they sing different notes. They're not all the same. Peace is not uniformity. Peace is not everybody is exactly the same. They, some people sing high, some people sing low. They sing different parts, but they don't sing in a way that's fighting against each other. They sing in harmony, so their voices blend and produce something that is more beautiful than any one of them individually could produce. And it's the same way in the church. You should pursue peace. You should work hard at developing peaceful, harmonious friendships with each other so that you can do something together that you could never do on your own, but that you can do as a church, working together. And brethren, when something breaks that peace, when something divides you from a brother or a sister, it doesn't just say, sit around and hope that peace shows up. It says, seek it, pursue it, chase it down and capture peace. And that might mean chasing somebody down before they get out those doors and saying, brother, can we talk? Or it might mean calling somebody up on the phone and saying, sister, I feel like we just need to talk. Having that hard conversation, perhaps apologizing for something that you've done wrong, perhaps talking to somebody about a way that you felt like they have wronged you, but seeking peace, seeking peace. Jesus is the great peacemaker. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of peace. And the fear of God does not create a community of people who are cowering and suspicious and and afraid of each other. No, fear the Lord because he is good. The fear of God creates a community of people who are free from the fear of man and who work and live together as a spiritual family under a good father with a perfect older brother, Jesus Christ, to imitate. This is what the Holy Spirit produces. This is the fear of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would clear away from our minds all the foolish and false notions that we have had about what the fear of God means. We pray that you would give to us a crystal clear view of the fear of you and how it springs from knowing you both in your greatness and in your goodness. But Lord, we pray for more than that because we could have a perfect understanding of the fear of God, but not have a drop of it in our veins. We don't want that, Lord. We want to fear you. We want to fear you, Lord, for who you truly are. We want to fear you as as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we want the fear of God to produce its beautiful and persevering fruit in our lives. So we pray for ourselves, Lord, and others that we love. And we pray that just as you promised in Jeremiah 32, 40, that you would put the fear of you within us so that we would never depart from you.
We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.